thirsty? You've come to the right place to wet your whistle. It's the Liquid Lifestyle with Ryan McGarrian, a full hour of liquid refreshment. Now, here's Ryan. And a very happy Saturday afternoon to you, my thirsty listeners. Uh, and if the sound of my voice is reaching you uh, today, that means you're riding the earth with us here at the Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network. And as always, I am your host and on-air bartender, Ryan McGarrian. And if you're joining us for the first time, uh, this little show of mine is dedicated to all things liquid and delicious with a special leaning towards what we call potent potables. Uh, of course, a fun little phrase that I've borrowed from the oft-used Jeopardy category, which includes spirits, cocktails, beers, and wines, with occasional forays into coffee and tea, along with the fine folks and joints that serve them up and create them, be them right here in P-Town, around the region, or parts parts, uh, parts far, far beyond. So uh, today finds uh, me sitting right here in my own restaurant, Oven and Shaker. Uh, I'm going to use that as my studio today, and uh, it's, uh, man, as we've been saying every week, so good to have fall uh, back in full swing. I look forward to this time of year. Just I, I just can't say enough about it. And uh, today I'm really stoked. Uh, we have an old friend of mine who's uh, made the trip up uh, to, to sit in with us at the Liquid Lifestyle, and uh, his name is Tad Seedstad. And Tad uh, is, a, is really an icon in the beverage industry. He is a winemaker, uh, a distilled spirits maker. He's made some real kind of critical uh, intellectual spirits in our space in the past 10 years. And uh, we're going ta- uh, to talk a, lot, uh, talk a little bit about these bad boys. So, Tad, what's cracking today, my man? Well, we're just finishing up Grape Harvest. It's been kind of a long last five or six weeks, which happens every year. This year was earlier, so kind of at the end of my fifth 100-plus-hour week. Uh, I'm a little tired, but happy to be up in the big city. You look none the worse for wear, my faces. man. Thank you. Yeah, you bet, man. So, uh, so this is an exciting time for you, of course, every year is, uh, is the harvest, and then I guess the crush is all happening all in, in, in kind of the same time, right? We're almost finished. So we have about nine red fermenters that are not pressed out yet. Um, with Cab Franc and Pinot Noir, and we'll probably finish uh, by Friday. And then, uh, not that things are over with, but it's definitely become manageable. Oh, that's good. Manageable is good, right? And when do those hours start to titrate down back to your normal 86.25 hours uh, a week, man? Um, hopefully very soon. <laughs> Dude, I'm I, not sure what normal is, but yeah. uh, I guess it's all a matter of reference. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, one of the things I was most uh, excited about doing today is just kind of sharing the ransom story with all of our listeners because, I mean, you have had, I mean, you've had a lot of success just on the business level. You make great wine and great spirits but again and you've also contributed in my opinion to the intellectual space very specifically with your ransom old tom gin but in other ways as well so man let's just uh, you want to just take us back to the to the kind of early days and and how you ended up getting into this business and how ransom evolved i think the i mean the initial impetus at least for me getting into the industry was simply loving to eat and drink and put the two things together uh, certainly with the emphasis on my end towards drinking. Uh, <laughs> not that it's exclusive of eating, because I think the two go together and they should. They um, so, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm in the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. Um, you know, I guess being a kid and spending a lot of time on a tractor, 
um, not having a lot of time to play and have fun like a lot of the other kids, I really couldn't wait to leave that and moved to New York City and went to college in New York City and had kind of a string of government and corporate jobs that were less than rewarding, I guess I would no, that's describe not possible. that as. And that's not to disparage anyone in either one of those two uh, endeavors. Why would uh, anybody like, want to jump into wine after that experience? <laughs> um, and I, I moved to Oregon in the early 90s and had gone back to night school to take biology and chemistry and studied on my own viticulture and analogy and just started working in the industry and uh, realized pretty quick that that was where I wanted to be. What was your first industry gig? I mean, you, know, you get back to Oregon. In Oregon, what was your first industry gig? I started working for Argyle uh, okay. initially when I first moved to Oregon and spent a lot of time on a disgorging line. Um, what is a disgorging line? A disgorging line is a process in making sparkling wine where uh, the bottles have been riddled, meaning the yeast has sunk all the way to the neck, and that part, that kind of plug of yeast and solids gets frozen, at which point you pull the cap, kind of a beer cap, off the top of the bottle, and the pressure inside shoots that plug out. You quickly try to stop more liquid from shooting out and either refill uh, with the base wine or add dosage, which is a sweetener mixed with generally a brandy. Um, and then put a cork in. Okay, and does, is that dosage, that's the sweetener and the brandy, is that kind of where, is that where the, is that the, where the secondary fermentation happens or where the, the... That is after the secondary fermentation. Okay, it's after, okay. Yeah, so primary fermentation usually occurs in barrels or tanks, secondary fermentation occurs in the bottle, and that's what gets the bubbles in the bottle. Nice, man. So uh, working at Argyle, what's in that, so in the progression of the journey towards Ransom, what happens after Argyle? After Argyle, I went to work for Amity Vineyards, uh, worked there for about four years, and at that point, maybe it was four or five years, uh, I started the distillery, and that was 1997, and continued working as a winemaker for other people, kind of as a contract winemaker for a number of different wineries until 2003. Okay. Uh, so seven years into my business, I was able to actually pay my own bills, and take a small salary. Wow, that's incredible, actually. That's really, really cool. And was this down in Corvallis, or was that up here? I was in Corvallis at that point. Okay. A lot of people don't realize there's just a ton of wine stuff going on down in Corvallis, right? I mean, is that is that a true, true there's, statement? There's a fair amount. I mean, obviously, that, you know, the kind of epicenter is probably between Salem and Portland, uh, the north end of the Willamette Valley, but... Uh, Corvallis, Eugene, moving towards the south end of the Lamont Valley has uh, a lot more wineries than I think people are really aware of. Okay. Um, so what, you know, early on, what were the first wines that you were making? What, I mean, was, was the wines that you were making based on maybe a balance of what you were interested in and what you could make? Or uh, what, what were some of the yeah, first things you were it, doing? It's part of the reason why I moved to Oregon and chose the Lamont Valley. So I kind of, you know, I, I cut my teeth on um, a lot of European wines, and I worked in Midtown Manhattan, close to a, a wine store called Sherry Lehman. And I was just trying to educate myself about wine, and I would finish work, and I'd go to Sherry Lehman and tell the wine stewards there, who are great, and very knowledgeable people, like, this is what I'm gonna make for dinner tonight. So like, what, what do you think I should drink? And they were definitely Eurocentric. Um, so I drank a lot of Alsatian whites, I uh, drank a lot of Burgundy, 
um, Italian wines, um, not oh. not a lot of American wines, but. I did get turned on to Pinot Noir from Oregon and also some of the Alsatian varieties from Oregon, which is what led me here. And, you know, I'm not a wine expert. I actually choose not to be a wine expert because I have so, my, my job is so oriented around spirits and beer and cocktails. Uh, but those wines, as I, just in my you know, little bit of knowledge, uh, they're all very, what I would call sessionable, drinkable wines. Like all the ones you're mentioning, the ones that captivate you are not the big, massive ones. They're the ones that you can just, they're, they're workmen, they're almost proletariat ones. They're stuff you can just hit every day, you know, after, after you know, a hard day's work. And uh, I don't know, would you say that's, am I, am I sort of in the right place? I, I think they go both ways. Okay. Yes, because they're lighter. I think it's easier for people to maybe drink them with either light food or sometimes no food. But I think also because of their style, which is generally higher acidity, kind of lighter bodied wines that they, they match well with food. Uh, whereas I think a lot of the heavy wines, higher alcohol, maybe more oak uh, with some residual sugar, to me, don't seem to match as well with the wider spectrum of what we might eat. Okay. Um, so, you know, that, to me, that's like, that really is what it's all about. It's like finding something that we can drink that will match with what we're eating at the same time. Yeah, for sure, man. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, for those who haven't experienced like the uh, the perfect food and wine pairing, you're missing out. I think that's one of the pinnacle experiences in the universe. To be honest, honest with you, like a perfect plate of nachos or some iberico. It's just like when you do get the right wine and the right plate and the right flavors, man. It's like you just moving forward. It's just there's this feeling that you can't have either one without each other. At least that's always how I've. Uh, how I've seen it, but once again, we're chatting with Tad Seedstad, the founder, owner, winemaker, distilled spirit maker from Ransom Spirits. You're listening to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Uh, we're having a good time here. We're chatting with uh, Tad Seedstad from Ransom Wines and Spirits. And uh, in the first segment, if you missed it, Tad's been uh, kind of sharing his journey with uh, uh, with all of us and uh, talking about how he moved into the space. Uh, and, you know, as we uh, move into this segment, Tad, I'd like to just chat about uh, kind of reset on uh, kind of what the first wines that you were making were and uh and where you went from there with regards to evolving those wines and then uh let's just move into spirits after that sure yeah the first wines that i were making uh, uh were also the wines that i enjoyed drinking and they were mostly burgundian varietals on the red end pinot noir on the white end chardonnay alsatian varietals on the white end would be riesling gewurztraminer uh, Pinot Gris didn't come real early. That was a few years later. Um, and also a little bit dabbling into Beaujolais. So pretty France-centric, although Riesling, Gewürztraminer certainly can go France or Germany. Riesling Wasteland. mostly Germany. Yeah. Um, and was also making Gamay Noir, uh, both in a Beaujolais style and more of a traditional punch-down ferment, bigger red style. So over at Hamlet, we have recently had a, uh, a Gamay Noir on tap. Um, 
Can you explain the difference in palette between a Pinot Noir and a Gamay Noir for, for our listeners? Well, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about, and I'll try not to get too carried away. Oh, but, dude, I, people uh, love carried away on this show, man, <laughs> so uh, you, you do your darndest. I, I think what people think of Gamay Noir and Beaujolais as being is more a result of the fermentation technique, and that technical term is called carbonic maceration. And the idea behind using that technique is to make a light, fruity, very easy to drink wine that's easy to drink when young. And it's not necessarily a reflection of Gamay Noir. So if we want to use the Beaujolais region as a reference, uh, we can look at the Beaujolais that come here as Beaujolais Nouveau. They make it, they're probably some gonna arrive here soon, right? Grapes that were harvested a few weeks ago. Um, But then there's also Cru Beaujolais which is made in a completely different manner. And that's made basically in the same way most red wines are, which you take the stems off or don't take the stems off the red grapes and you ferment them in basically in a big uh, tank or small tank on their skins uh, for maybe a week to three weeks. So the wines have more body, more color, more extraction. And generally those are wines that need to age. Whereas carbonic maceration ferments usually in fairly large vessels and tanks um, without any stirring or any mixing and the grapes are fermenting from the outside in and that makes this lighter colored, lighter lighter bodied, very easy to drink um, and you know simple and easy to understand wine. Cool man and uh, you know because I want to move, you know me, I want to move into spirits so I I guess I want to finish up on the wine like which wine of the wines you're making right now which, is there one that you're particularly stoked about or, or one that you find yourself drinking more than any of the other wines coming out of, uh, out of your winery? Well, I'd say every year we try to do one or two new things. Okay. So there are certainly uh, wines or varietals that we're working with at any one time that we might be really jazzed up about and focusing on. So I would break it down to two. Um, one being a varietal and a wine that I never get tired of drinking that has enormous spectrum, and that's Riesling. Uh Uh, Matches well with a huge array of different foods, can be made bone dry, super acidic, anywhere in between and up to late harvest dessert wines that uh, you'd certainly match with dessert, but either have by itself or with dessert. And the other that we started working with and that I have planted on my farm is Albarino. Um, and I think that historically in the Lamette Valley, we've been kind of uh, French-focused and been most, mostly planting and working with varieties that are grown in France, some Germany. Um, but I think that our climate, being very influenced by the ocean, uh, is, lends itself to trying the varieties that are grown in northwest Spain and Galicia and Basque Country. So we're, we're pretty excited about working with some of those varieties and, and growing them oh, as well. That's so cool, man. So, all right, well, you know, in, in the industry, and specifically in the, in, the, in the cocktail space, people know you uh, for your spirits, and uh, you have uh, such a wide range of delicious spirits. The one you're known, in my experience around the world, the one that really people know is your Ransom Old Tom Gin, which is an absolute revelation. And we could talk about that for for a show unto itself but uh, so when did you make that transition from winemaker into spirit well, and was there a catalyst for that or how, when did that happen it happened early on and I think that um, not that I don't drink spirits anymore but I used to drink a lot more spirits when I was younger <laughs> and it was a curiosity you know and that was back 
you'll appreciate this, you know, in the 80s when cocktails were really pretty bad across the board and what I gravitated towards was drinking neat spirits because it was much more interesting to me to try to figure out, well, what went into the spirit? What was it made from? How was it made? And why does it taste the way it tastes? And the particular catalyst for getting into making spirits was um, I had a relationship with a woman from Alsace, France. Huh. Um, and she w we worked together as winemakers in the industry and she would go to France and bring back interesting bottles of mostly brandies made um, in France, but she brought back one time a Mirabelle, a plum, mm. Mirabelle plum brandy that her father had made in their garage. Okay. Her father was, uh, I think, an accountant or something. And I was blown away. It was probably one of the best eau de vies and spirits I had had up until that point. And the light went off in my head. I thought, wow, if this guy who's an accountant uh, can make a plum brandy that tastes this phenomenal. I'm a winemaker. Why can't I do it too? That's and good logic. Yeah. <laughs> that really started it. That was 1993. Okay. Um, and I started experimenting with distilling. Uh, started working on uh, plum brandies using um, Italian blue plums here and making grappa. Okay. And that's really what got the ball rolling. Dude, that grappa, I, I mean, I know you make a few different grappas, but I've got two bottles. I think it's uh, a grappa of Gewürztraminer. Uh, do you recall making a grappa from Gewürztraminer? We still do it. Okay, good, man. This thing, so um, I'm going to let Tad tee up what grappa is, but uh, this thing is just floral and of the earth and... You know, to me, it's it's quite sessionable, man. It's aggressive, but man, it's just like one of the. It's very soothing. It's kind of like a spa for the soul, in some ways. Uh, can you remind our listeners what grappa is? Well, I think grappa is a pretty misunderstood category. So, and most people, when you, sorry to jump in there, Tad. I just the time is flying by. Uh, we got to jump out real quick. Once again, you're listening to the Liquid Lifestyle on the Northwest uh, Radio Northwest Network. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network here. And uh, once again, uh, this is Ryan McGarrian, your on-air host, uh, your bartender for the afternoon. And uh, we're sitting here with uh, Tad Seedstad from Ransom uh, Wine and Spirits. And uh, in our last segment, Tad, uh, we were, uh, you were just about to explain grappa to everybody because uh, we were talking about how much I love the, uh, the Gewürztraminer uh, uh, grappa that you guys do. Uh, you want to see that back up? Uh, what is grappa, my man? So grappa is a, a fairly misunderstood and misinterpreted product. It's a brandy uh, in the brandy, brandy category and generally is made from sort of leftovers from the winemaking process, which is a key, I think, to whether grappa is good or bad. Uh, so sometimes grappa tends to be an afterthought. It's kind of a recycling program. And that, I think, yields grappa that people would describe as kind of being the rocket fuel, kind of harsh, hot, plug your nose, try to throw it down, uh, sort of grappa that, you know, has given it a bad reputation. But on the other end, grappa can be an amazingly pleasant, wonderful thing to drink that has the aromatics of the varietal it was made from, is relatively smooth on the palate, although you have people have to consider that they're drinking it neat, 
it's uncut, so they may be drinking at anywhere between 80 and 90 proof or perhaps even higher. Um, but I think what can make grappa so well, so taste so good, um, is that it's generally made from ripe grapes. And those ripe grapes are picked when it's optimal to make wine, which is when they're tasting their best. So grappa that's made from the pumice and skins and pulps that's very juicy yields a grappa that's fruity, uh, very pleasant aromatically, as opposed to grappa made from sort of dried out leftovers that would make a grappa that smells more sort very earthy and sometimes I would describe that as sort of musty old hay. Yeah. Not Ooh. very nice. Not very nice. Kind of turned is what I, you know, what I, how yeah. I describe it to somebody. It's, there's a turnness from a, it doesn't, it doesn't taste alive and yours definitely tastes alive. But you know what? Uh, I really want to jump right into the spirit that I think, again, you're most known for throughout the world and the spirit that I think not only has been a big success for you, but has been a really cool kind of, it's really contributed to the intellectual space. And that, of course, is the old Tom gin that you make and just for our listeners uh you know if you don't know what gin is uh, and most of you probably do it is a spirit that is uh influenced by the flavor of juniper and there's been a, a you know a huge evolution over 500 600 700 years with regards to that category of course you know the first juniper spirit was yenever uh, a dutch spirit which was a lot like um, like a like a whiskey uh, with a little juniper added originally for medicinal purposes. Uh, and then uh, once that uh, kind of passion for juniper spirits made, uh, made the jump from the mainland Europe to the UK, we saw an evolution, uh, kind of a bridge category uh, between that Dutch style and the dry gin that we know today. That is called Old Tom Gin. And, uh, and when I'm training gin, I always talk about that Old Tom is a span. And there isn't an Old Tom Gin recipe that this is an Old Tom Gin. It's, you know, an early old Tom would, could be a lot different than an old Tom closer to the mid-1800s when you've already got the processes of, uh, of continuous distillation. So uh, using that as a premise, man, tell us all about your old Tom gin. Maybe just start with how that, how that brand, how that spirit came about. Well, it started, uh, we started working on that project in 2005 or 2006, and I have an old friend from New York named Dave Wandrich, who is a spirits writer, historian. General G- giant legend in yeah. the cocktail world, for and sure. It's funny because we were friends uh, long before either one of us got in the spirits industry. We worked together, went out together. Dave was in a punk rock band, and I like to go to punk rock shows. Not so much anymore. Dude, what was Dave's... Like, do you remember the name of Dave's punk rock band? The band was called The Original Rays. That was okay. the last reiteration, but he was in several. So, Dave, when you listen to this, man, I've got... I, you, <laughs> if you open a dive bar, I think you got to bring that name back. You just call it The Original Ray, man. I just think it has such a good ring to it. So, so you and Dave, old buddies, working on Spirit. We were, we were having lunch at McSorley's. I think it was 2005, and we hadn't seen each other. We were just kind of reacquainted thanks to the internet and actually Ryan McGarrian. How? Who I well I see I saw Dave's name on Spirits articles and I asked you, this is probably more than ten years ago. Yeah, yeah it was a while. Do you ago. know a guy named Dave Wandridge? Yeah. And you said yes I know him and I asked for his email and so that's how that's that how happened. happened. Oh man, I feel like I had no I had no idea I had a small tiny itty bitty part yeah, of this yeah. story, man. That's You're so the connection. Cool. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but, you know, I'd sent some of, some of my Eau de Vies and the Gewürztraminer Eau de Vie and Grappa to Dave. And, you know, we've been talking about brandies and things and making different sorts of brandies. And I told him at lunch one day that I was wanted to work on a gin recipe. 
and he said, why don't you work on an old time gin? Because uh, Jerry Thomas book, a lot of old cocktail books reference old time gin. And at that point in 2005, there were none on the market. My question for him was, what is an old time gin? And that started, that really started us down the path. And, you know, Dave being a researcher and historian gave us parameters or gave me parameters because at the time I didn't have any employees. Um, oh, and, I remember, man, because and, you were sharing the space over there on the, in East Portland with us over at House Spirits. So, I mean, we got to hang out quite a bit. And uh, gosh, that was, a, that was a fun time, at least for me, just to, there's a lot of kind of intellectual awesomeness going on. And it was fun, you know, just being around the, the beginnings of this spirit that I see around the world. But yeah, sorry to interject right there. Yeah, go ahead. But I, I guess the, you know, for me, it was this really fun sort of historical recreation project to work on with an old friend who I really like yeah. um, and respect and didn't really know what would happen of it. You know, I thought, well, you know, I basically use, you know, use my distillery three months out of the year making brandies and grappas and odivies, and then it sits still for nine months. And also, it's interesting antidote that Americans don't drink a lot of brandy or eau de vie. So I felt that I needed to make something that was interesting, um, that had interesting aromatics and flavor profiles that Americans drank, and that was gin. Um, and this was certainly a very odd gin for that time frame. So it, was, it is and was a high malt percentage gin. Uh, made from a mash bill of corn and malted barley. Um, relatively simple on the botanicals, and that those are the parameters that Dave set because we're making an old-style, old-time gin, something that maybe people would have had um, in the earlier part of the 1800s. Okay. And those botanicals are juniper, orange, lemon, coriander, angelica root, and a little bit of cardamom. Okay. Uh, but the really odd aspect of that gin is that we decided that it should be aged in barrels. And that was really to replicate what would have happened at that time because nothing, no spirits were bottled up in glass bottles and boxed in cardboard boxes and shipped across the country, across the ocean, or the world at that point. They all went in barrels because it didn't make sense to cut with water, ship water across the ocean. Uh, or ship glass across the ocean or across the United States, which at that point was relatively small um, because it took too much infrastructure near moving ex excess weight. So everything was stored and shipped in barrels. So in order to replicate that, we thought we'll give this four to six months in barrel. Um, it'll pick up a little bit of influence from the barrel, be sort of a light amber colored. And um, it was very unusual. I didn't know what to expect, you know, for a malty, amber brown colored gin. I thought, well, it'll be kind of a, a unusual item and will probably sell a few hundred cases a year, which may help pay our rent, which I had to work to pay the rent prior to that with a second job. Right. Uh, and I turned out to be completely surprised. And the gin really caught on. It caught on in the mixology world, uh, caught on with the consumer. And it is now what we make the most of in the distillery. It's amazing how things like that happen. I mean, when, when I hear stories like that, I'm always kind of thinking about that book by Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point. You know, it's all about, there's so much, you know, life is, there's so much timing involved, right? I mean, like, you know, you put out Ransom Old Tom in like a peak of, an, of, of 
a peak of like a time in our industry where there's just hyper interest in all things intellectual and finding context and finding story. I mean, I feel like that that happened with us uh, with Aviation Gin. Same thing. You know, I don't know what would have happened if we did that five years later or five years earlier. And it's just like you threaded a needle with that bad boy. So that's I just think wonderful. the timing is, is critical. And that's interesting, you know, because one of my friends was trying to get me to work on a gin in 1998 and I didn't do it. Dude, again, time flying, man. We're going <laughs> to jump out real quick. Uh, this has been a great third segment here with Tad Seedstad. Uh, more in a moment. Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. We're having a smoking conversation with my man Tad Seedstad, uh, the uh, founder, uh, winemaker, spirit maker at Ransom Wine and Spirits, and uh, it's just been really fun, kind of reconnecting with you and uh, and talking about the, your backstory and talking about the evolution of your wine, you know, your winery and your and your thoughts behind, you know, what wines you wanted to make, and then moving into, you know, the spirits again, and then the massive success you've had with your Ransom Old Tom Gin. Uh, you know, in this last segment, you know, I want to kind of tee up the fact that there's a lot of other stuff you're doing on the spirit side besides the grappa that we talked about and uh, the old Tom Gin, obviously, that we spent a good time chatting about, man. So, uh, so you want to kind of kind of fill us in on all the other kind of fun spirit stuff you're up to these days? Sure. Yeah, I I think uh, you know, for us, the the idea is that we want to make spirits and wine and the in-betweens vermouth that really reflect the raw materials that we're using. Um, so we've come out with another gin, Ransom Dry Gin, which is sort of a cross between a high malt percentage uh, Dutch Yenver and with the botanical influence that's more intense of sort of a London Dry or American Dry Gin. Okay. Um, that one's a little unusual. We use Marion berries and hops. Really? Some of the botanicals. It's things um, that are absolutely nobody knows about in the Pacific Northwest, Marion berries and hops. Well, right? we want to have some tie, tie in, <laughs> in actually. Uh, we were trying to replicate an old school Dutch Jennifer. We worked on that for a couple of years. Simple, simple botanicals. That was only juniper, hops, and citrus, and we really couldn't get it right. So we switched gears and sort of bumped up the volume, so to speak, on the botanicals and ended up with the Ransom Dry Gin. Oh, man, that's so cool, man. Uh, I know, you know, like, I always say that if, if you make whiskey, you will sell whiskey. It's like the most sure bet product on the face of the earth. Uh, and you're making whiskey, and you've got two of them, right? You're doing two whiskeys, right? We've got, we actually have three oh, uh, right now, and a couple, well, at least one that'll be, is yet to be released, but we have the Whippersnapper, which is a corn barley blend, 
I don't know how to describe that best, but it may be somewhere between a bourbon and an Irish whiskey. Oh, I like it. Uh, pretty malty. Okay. Um, definitely with a kind of palate uh, mouthfeel of corn. Um, we also have our kind of flagship whiskey, that which we release once a year, which we're releasing right now, is called the Emerald. Okay. And that was another project that we worked on with Dave Wandrich. Yeah. Uh, trying to kind of bring back old school Irish whiskeys. And what's different about that whiskey is the presence of oats. So huh. back in the day, uh, Irish whiskeys almost across the board all had oats as part of their mash bill. It's difficult to work mashing with because it's very gooey and sticky. Um, but it has a profound effect even in smaller percentages uh, of the mash bill on how the whiskey smells and tastes. Okay. Wow. And and uh, and you got the whippersnapper. We have the whippersnapper, dude. And and tell me you didn't make you didn't name it that because you wanted uh, to serve it to people who are not quite uh, as old as we are. <laughs> well, you know, if you look at the definition of a whippersnapper, I think one of them anyway is sort of a young, impertinent usually fellow, and I think they make it masculine for some reason, uh, but one who also has uh, more than the usual amount of potential. Okay. Uh, and that is, you know, it's a younger whiskey. Average age on that is about 18 months, all okay. full-size barrels. Uh, but and what, what, what's a full, just, just for the listeners out there, what's a full-size barrel gallon? A, a full-size barrel would be between 50 and 60 gallons. Okay. Um, so, we, you know, we want to make something that has the, the good aspects of being barrel-aged, but still has the, the imprint of the grains that it's made from that should dominate the aromatics and flavor. So that's pretty grainy, pretty malty, uh, with, I think, just enough wood influence to balance well and kind of flesh the whiskey out. Dude, that sounds delicious, man. You're doing such cool stuff, man. I'm just, I'm grateful personally that you're a part of my journey. And, uh, man, we're just coming up on the end of the show. This stuff flies, man. But, uh, man, I just want to thank you for being here. And, uh, once again, we've been talking with uh, Tad Seat's dad from Ransom Wines and Spirits. You can find his stuff all over the Pacific Northwest and parts beyond. Personally, I say go out, get yourself a bottle of Ransom Old Tom Gin, throw it over some ice with a lemon twist, and you're going to have the night of your life. So uh, we got to jump out. Uh, again, great for uh, great having you, Tad, and uh, I hope you all have a fantastic Saturday afternoon. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, you bet.